Romans 15, 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the very word of God. Somebody said that it couldn't be done, but he with a chuckle replied that maybe it couldn't, but he would be one who wouldn't say so till he tried. So he buckled right in with the trace of a grin on his face. If he worried, he hid it. He started to sing as he tackled that thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. So begins the poem by Edgar Albert Guest. Didn't look like anybody knew that poem. It's one that, for some reason, I memorized in high school. And it is one that makes me think of someone with a lot of ambition. I want to live my life like that. I want to live my life with ambition. So apparently did the Apostle Paul, who speaks of his own ambition in this passage before us. The actual word that is translated ambition down in verse 20 means to strive after that which we consider to be a great honor. It means to give your life to that which you see as worth it. And the Apostle Paul had his great ambition because he saw that the gospel of the kingdom and its ministry is that which could, is the only thing, in fact, that could possibly fill us with an unending ambition for our lives. Paul saw this, and so it became his great ambition, the advancement of the kingdom. And unashamedly, here in Romans 15, in this passage and the one, Lord willing, we'll look at next week, he calls all of us to share in that ambition. Again, the Apostle Paul had as his own ambition and unashamedly calls you and me 
to this ambition, to give your life for this singular cause, the gospel of the kingdom and its ministry. The gospel of the kingdom and its ministry. To understand Paul's gospel, the gospel Paul preaches, the one that he has unveiled to us in the great letter to the Romans, and to believe it is to become obsessed with it. I'll say that again. If you, Christian, understand the gospel, do you understand the gospel? If you do, and you believe it, you couldn't help but become obsessed with it. If you understand the good news of the kingdom of God, you could hardly be unmotivated by it. You could hardly lose your ambition. The gospel of the kingdom of God simply is the greatest ambition of your life, the greatest ambition you could possibly have, and Jesus himself unashamedly calls you to make it so. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God. So this is my goal, my task, my ambition for this morning is to summon all of us who believe in the gospel of Jesus to the greatest ambition you could have for your life. But let me try to set it up for us this way. Because throughout the letter to the Romans, I hope we've, begin, we've begun to see that oftentimes the way we have framed the gospel of the kingdom simply does not lead us to making the gospel of the kingdom our great ambition. So long as the gospel we preach is mainly news about how to go to heaven when you die, it will be difficult for us to keep the gospel of the kingdom central in your life. And the reason for that is quite simple. If the gospel that we preach has very little to do with life here and now, then intuitively we will not make much of it here and now. But if the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, a kingdom that is here, right now, even if not yet in all of its glorious fullness, then we will be much more likely to prioritize the kingdom day by day, so long as we have breath. So again, if your understanding of the gospel is the way Paul understands the gospel, laid out for us in the book of Romans, primarily news about the kingdom of God that has dawned on us through the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, then this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, will be able to be center in all of your life. Still, we could use some help as to what practically it might look like for us to have this kingdom-first ambition. If we believe that the kingdom of God has broken in on the present world, and if we were to begin to live as if it were so, then I want to consider with you this morning what that might look like for ordinary Christians like you and me. We can prioritize the gospel of the kingdom. We can keep the kingdom, our great ambition, when we concern ourselves first with the welfare of the church, second, the achievements of the kingdom, and then third, the expansion 
of the ministry. The welfare of the church, the achievements of the kingdom, and the expansion of the ministry. First, we can see in verses 14 through 16 that Paul's ambition for the kingdom of God manifested itself in his great concern for the welfare of the church. And I mean local congregations like this one. Kingdom ambition is never about the fulfillment of individual desire. The Christian can only find his or her true self in company with the Christian community. If there's anything we must know about Paul's gospel to start it out, we have to say this. What we've said over and over again, we've seen it through the book of Romans, is that Christianity is no private faith. It is communal. It is public. It is embodied in a church. So let's look at what Paul is saying here in verse 14. He He's writing now, right after this benediction that he gave in verse 13. And the benediction, his prayer for the believers in Rome, is not meant to imply that the Christians there have no joy and no peace in their faith, that they lack all hope that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's not why he asks for that. Look what he says now about these believers in verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters. And the verb that he uses here, satisfied, means that he is convinced that the believers in Rome are healthy, healthy Christians. They are mostly mature. He even calls them strong Christians. What marks Christian maturity? He gives three of them here in verse 14. Notice, first, a mature Christian is one who is full of goodness, (laughs) full of goodness, Goodness is listed as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And its particular manifestation is in the genuine interest that one has for the welfare of others. A mature Christian is one who is not consumed with his own well-being, but cares greatly about the well-being of others, especially of their Christian brothers and sisters. So to put it practically, a mature Christian doesn't come to corporate worship thinking only what is there for me today, but comes full of goodness, ready to share in the welfare of one another. So before you go today, greet someone and ask about their welfare. Second, a mature Christian is one who is filled with all knowledge. Now this probably refers to the fact that Paul believes that the Roman Christians understood the gospel that he preached in the letter to the Romans. Now think about that. As we've seen, this story, this this gospel is a story. It's a gospel story. It's a story that revolves around God's promise made to Israel in the Old Testament, a story that has now come to its climax in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. So the believers in Rome, Paul says, are filled with knowledge. They understand the story. They can connect the Old Testament to the New. So if you're a mature Christian, you can do the same. If you know this story well, then here is a third mark of Christian maturity that immediately follows. Paul says of the Roman Christians, they are able to instruct one another. Now this verb is a pastoral term in the New Testament. 
And the pastoral task, what is the job of a pastor, of, of your elders? What are they supposed to do? Here is one of the primary responsibilities of an elder. It is to draw out the application of the gospel story for everyday life. So you come to your pastors, to your elders, and you say, I got a, I got a situation in my life. Help me think through this. And what you want from your pastor is not self-help, not good advice. You want gospel help. At least that's what you should be after, right? But here is the interesting thing. Paul says this about all the believers in Rome. And this word that he uses can also be translated to admonish or to warn, carrying a corrective tone. But here's the whole point of the correction. If there is correction, pastoral correction that needs to be made, the whole point of it is to help one another live our lives in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in line with the gospel that we believe. So what we are given here, notice in verse 14, is Paul's confidence that at one level, the believers in Rome did not need him. They didn't even really need his own letter to the Romans. Think about that. He was not writing to them because they were lacking in pastoral care. Paul himself did not plant this church. We don't know who did. But he still saw this was nevertheless a good, healthy church. God had planted his church in Rome without Paul the apostle. The kingdom of God was taking root in the Roman Empire, through the agency of other Christians, not just through the great apostle. And because Paul knew that the good news of the kingdom is always bigger than any of the work that we might do for it. Nevertheless, Paul says in verse 15, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. He saw it necessary at times in the letter to the Romans, to stress certain aspects of the gospel in order to remind them of how important such things are in practice. The gospel that Paul preached can never be limited to a set of propositional statements that someone could simply say, yes, amen, I believe that, without it greatly affecting their lives. Paul is probably referring here to the practical application of the gospel that he drew out for the Roman Christians in chapters 12 to 15. So even if a Christian is particularly mature in the faith, here's an important point. There is always the need, always the need, of being reminded of the gospel and the effect that it should have on our lives. <laughs> time and time again, we see the writers of the New Testament letters doing this. They are reminding their readers, reminding their audience, reminding the churches to remember the truth of the gospel in such a way that they can carry out the implications of the gospel in their everyday lives. Surely we're supposed to do the same. We dare not give practical advice to one another unhinged from the gospel. So when you are asking somebody today about the welfare, their welfare, how are you doing? And they begin to tell you, don't you dare start throwing out counsel unhinged from the gospel story. But also, never leave the gospel truths 
disconnected from gospel practices. We're not just rehearsing a series of dogmas. We're living out the realities of the kingdom of God that has now dawned. So do you know how to do that? Here's a way to start, at least for you to begin to think about it, for, for me to begin to think about it. Just start with the gospel Paul preached. If the gospel is indeed the good news that the long-awaited kingdom of God promised in the Old Testament has broken in right now into the present, into everyday reality through Jesus Christ, then what does that mean? What would our lives look like? How should we respond if we really believed Jesus is Lord? Start to rehearse that in your own circumstances of life so that you will become skilled at preaching this good news to your brothers and sisters. Now, in verse 16, Paul elaborates on the grace given me by God when he says it is his call to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now, that's a lot of spiritual words. His particular calling was to serve Messiah Jesus specifically among the nations. He was what we might call here a goer. He calls this ministry of this service priestly. That is, it involved making preparations for a sacrifice. That's what Paul saw his ministry as. And the end of verse 16 tells us what it was he was preparing to sacrifice. Here's what it says. Look at it. So that the offering of the Gentiles. <laughs> Are you a Gentile? Not a Jew? Yeah, Paul is unashamedly saying, I am preparing you for a sacrifice. Sounds interesting or not. Scary. He says he's preparing the Gentiles uh, as an offering so that they may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The, the sacrifice that Paul sees as his ministry is the nations, the nations of the world. But, lest that scare you off, as we've already been told in Romans 12.1, this is a living sacrifice. His work has been to bring the nations of the world as a sacrifice by the offering of personal life in comprehensive obedience to Christ. It's what he spoke about at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 5. It's what he refers to again down in verse 18. This is the goal of the gospel. Here it is. This is what the gospel is aiming at, to bring everyone who believes it into the glorious place of joyful submission in every area and aspect of their life to Jesus Christ. So Paul's kingdom ambitions led him to care greatly about the welfare of the church, the nations. As missional as he was, as much as he had his sights set on unreached places, he never could disconnect that ambition for the health of local churches, for ordinary Christians like you and me. He saw the spiritual health of the believers in the church not as the means to a goal, but the actual goal. 
And so it is with us. If you're going to seek first the kingdom of God, if you're going to take Jesus' command in Matthew 6.33, seriously, here's the place to begin. You've got to be church-oriented. You have to be. You, ha- you just simply have to be. This is a problem in the, the, the world that we live in in the Bible Belt. You might think that's strange because it's the Bible Belt, right? Everybody, we have a problem here where the church is minimized in all of its glory and all of its fullness. And by church, of course, I mean the people in the church, The goal for those of us who are citizens of God's kingdom is told in Ephesians 4.15. It is that together we might grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, Christ. So if we understand the reality of the kingdom of God that Christ has inaugurated, then we must understand the importance of helping your brothers and sisters sitting right next to you this morning. This is your ministry to help one another Grow up in the faith. All right. Off my soapbox. It's in the Bible. Okay. I guess I'll just stay here for a while. You guys are not with me today. This is the great ambition that we have as kingdom-minded people. But let's move on. Let's look now at verses 17 and 19 and notice a second way that ambition for the kingdom of God will likely manifest itself. And this one is interesting. I think this is probably the most striking verse in our text this morning. Because when we think of ambition, we usually think of looking forward to the work that we are aspiring to accomplish. If I say, hey, you you got any ambition today? And you say, yes, it's probably about what you're going to go do. But I want you to notice Paul does something quite striking here. He takes a moment to look back, to reflect on the work that he has accomplished. And here it is, a kingdom-minded Christian, one with Christian ambition, celebrates the achievements of the kingdom. Now look at it. Verse 17 is a bold statement. When Adam read it this morning, I just almost chuckled. It hit me again. It was just amazing. Look what Paul says. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Wow. Now, here is something that we Christians tend to get all backwards. We take all sorts of pride in our work for ourselves. But, of course, we don't say anything because we're humble about it. And occasionally, we'll feel guilty for doing so. But here, notice that it is good and right to boast. That's a word he uses. To boast in our work so long as this is work that we are doing for God. Now, that is amazing. May God fill our church this morning with boasting about the work that you have done for God. I'm praying for that. Like I, that might make us a little more joyful today. So I'm hoping that I can help us to do this. Let's be clear. Paul was not boasting in some kind of meritorious work for God. See, the problem that we have is, again, our understanding of the gospel is 
tends to stop with a verse like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you're saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the work of God so that no one could boast. There it is. No boasting. And yet you read in your Bible over and over and over again, Paul is not afraid. He is not ashamed to boast about the work that he is involved in for God. Maybe we should learn to boast as well. Working for God here does not mean trying to earn God's approval. To somehow prove our worth so that God will keep us in the family. If that's how you're thinking about it, if that's what you think about working for God, then yes, you need to start back at the beginning of the letter. Yet, however much we have to keep reminding ourselves of that, that no work we do is meritorious, the Christian must never forget who he, who she is in light of the kingdom of God. Do you know who you are, Christian? Do you know who you are? You're a citizen of God's kingdom by grace. And the reality of God's kingdom here and now not only means that there is no need to work for God's approval, that's good news, but it also means it is a great privilege to work for God's glory. So let's, let's try to think a little. Let's try to help each other out. Paul's work for God, in which he unashamedly boasts, is what we usually think of as ministerial work. If he was an apostle, a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, he was involved in work that we sometimes call full-time ministry. Where did that phrase come from? The work in which he took pride, what was he looking back and taking pride in? Unashamedly, pretty clearly, as he says here and he says elsewhere, the, the pride that he had, the work he could look back on and say, wow, look at the work I've done for God, was the planting of local churches. But the words in verse 17, when Paul says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, are not that specific. And Paul is hereby suggesting that it is appropriate, indeed it is required, God wants this, for you and me to take pride in all kinds of work that is done for God. Paul could not have expected that everyone would be involved in exactly the same kind of work that he did, but he would not want any Christian to miss out on the joy of boasting in their work for God. So in verse 18, Paul speaks carefully. Literally, he says this, For I will not dare to speak of that which Christ did not accomplish through me. It's a double negative. <laughs> In other words, I will dare to speak of that which Christ does accomplish through me. But he says it very humbly. He's going to keep his mouth shut and avoid all boasting in anything that he is not confident was not a work of Christ in him. He knows what you know, that pride in ourself is deadly, devilish. He wants no part of it. And neither should you. But you and I as Christians, I think, can have the opposite problem. 
And in what comes out of our mouths, we could use quite a bit more boasting in what Christ has accomplished through us. So what kind of things can Christ accomplish through you? I'm talking to each one of you. What kinds of things can Christ accomplish through you? Has it ever occurred to you, Christian? Has it ever occurred to you that your own vocation, and when I use that word, I mean not only the work that you do that you might get paid for, but literally every activity that you do is all meant to be work for God. Everything. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, finish it. For the glory of God. Has that ever occurred to you how massive that call is, that scope of Christian vocation? Just as in the first creation, when God enlisted his human creatures to work it and to keep it, Genesis 2.15, so also in the new creation of the kingdom of God. God intends for you and me to be stewards of the work that he wants done. It's a great privilege, not that we can build his kingdom as if God doesn't need, as if we don't need God, but we certainly are called to build for the kingdom of God. And if we are doing true work for God, then we really ought to take pride in it. <laughs> we really ought to boast in it. And here's why. Boasting means you say something, you talk about it. And when you boast in the work that you do for God, that Christ has accomplished through you, you know what you're doing? You're worshiping Jesus. It is, ironic as it may seem, the only pathway to true humility. True humility is not to keep your mouth shut. It is to make much of Jesus and his work through you. Now, when Paul stopped to look back and boast in what he had done for the kingdom of God, what did he see? He saw, verse 18, the Gentiles brought to obedience. Okay, yes, that's the work of evangelism. Yes, that's the work of church planting, to be sure. But we could describe this more broadly. The work that Paul did had this as its goal, that Christ would be exalted so highly that people would come to see him and his kingdom on earth as the greatest good to which we can devote ourselves. So that's what your work is aiming to do. If you're, you're saying, I want to I work for God, then here's what you're aiming at. You want Jesus to be so exalted, so magnified, so lifted up, so honored that everyone around you sees how beautiful Jesus is. So how, 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 do you, how do you do that? How do you do it in your everyday life, in your eating and drinking and everything that you do? For one, it will always require, as verse 18 says, look, Paul tells us how. He did it by word and deed. Word and deed, there it is. It was not just his words, his preaching. It was also in his actions, including not just the things that he did, but also how he acted, the way he did it, his character and his conduct. 
We don't have to set these two things against one another. It's only by preaching or it's only by action. We don't have to do that. We, we, we Christians should put them together. Not all of us are gifted evangelists, quick-tongued and convincing, but all of us can work for God with a character that has taken on a cruciform shape. See, the more you and I are transformed in light of God's mercies, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God, the more God's kingdom work will be advanced through us. Listen, Christian, what the world needs most from you is for you to be a fully consecrated Christian, enlivened by Christ and increasingly taking on his form. Verse 19 gives us more ways in which Paul accomplished his work for God. Now, all of us would love to be able to do our work for God, what he says here, by the power of signs and wonders, right? You want signing up for that? Would you like to do that kind of work? And we know in Paul's ministry, this included exactly that, miracles of healing and such. And the reality of God, if there is a God and his kingdom has come, then this could never, ever totally rule out the possibility that God's work continues to include, at times, by God's sovereign decree, signs and wonders. Nevertheless, what does define all kingdom work is what Paul says at the end of verse 19, the power of the Spirit of God. You say, that's what I want most. Whether God manifests signs and wonders, all of that comes by the power of God's Holy Spirit. So let me have, some, let me have the Holy Spirit, you say. Guess what, Christian? The mark of God's new creation is exactly this. The prophet Joel said, the day is coming when God will pour out his spirit on all his people. On all his people. The New Testament is adamant that this is exactly the time that has come following the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, then you have the spirit of God poured out, lavished upon you. It's a power that promises you not only where you will be when you die, but also reminds you that you live in a time now of incredible privilege to work for God by the power of his spirit. Like Paul, we've all been given this ministry of the kingdom of God by the mercy of God. Like Paul, then, we have a ministry to fulfill by the power of his spirit. And so like Paul, we need to know what it means to discharge our duties for the glory of God. And then to be able to look back and be proud, to boast, to proclaim what Christ has accomplished through us. This boasting is the practice of daily worship. It's a great privilege. God calls you to daily worship for your boasting. So you can look back on the day before, the week before, and see how God, through Christ, has been gracious to you and has done his work through you. It's a way to find satisfaction in your daily activities of life, whatever it is God has called you to do.
today or tomorrow. You skip that at your own loss, Christian. This is the privilege we have. Now, one last thing. This one I'll be more quick about if you help me this morning. Because I'm preaching until you're happy. So I got a lot of sour faces still out there. I want you to catch a vision of the kingdom of God. We need this. Because we know, of course, that even as we pause to worship God, looking back, reflecting on what Christ has done through us, there remains more work to be done until Christ returns. So one last way that our ambition for God's kingdom can be evident is in our zeal to see the expansion of the ministry. The ministry, the, 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 the vocation, the calling, the work that is to be done to make much of Jesus in every possible area of life. Now, Paul, of course, is quite the missionary. His pride in what he has seen Christ accomplish through him only leads him naturally to look forward. He seems to have a clear strategy in mind. Um, if you just if you have a, a, a map in the back of your Bible, you can look up the places that he mentions in verse 19 and compare them with his plans that we're going to see next week in verses 22 to 24. And here's what you see. Paul, he, here's his ambition. He, he sees it as his calling to preach the gospel and plant churches throughout the northern arc of the Roman Empire. It's very ambitious. So when he says in verse 19 that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, he does not mean that every person in those areas that he's been laboring in has now heard the gospel. There's still work to be done in those parts. And who do you think he expects to carry on that work? The Christians in the churches that have been planted there. So there's plenty of work to be done even in those places where Christ has been named. You know, like Oklahoma City. There's plenty of work to be done. But he has a sense that he has, he's finished his calling in those areas. And so he indicates in verse 20, it's time for him to move on. He is retiring, if you will, from one particular calling and vocation. If by retirement, we mean the great privilege to look back and celebrate what God has done through us so far with a readiness to continue gospel work in a different way or in a different place, then retire. Take your early retirement. Go for it. As long as you are filled with kingdom ambition. You with me? Paul had a great ambition. He wanted his ministry, he wanted the ministry, the ministry of the gospel to go all the way as far west as the Roman Empire was at the time, all the way to Spain, he says. And by the way, we don't know if he ever got there. In fact, most commentaries will tell you most likely Paul never got that far. It's likely that he died a martyr's death before he would ever be able to say in Spain, 
I fulfilled my task. However, Paul was not the kind of worker for God who ever thought that in Christ his work would fail or could fail. He said this, memorable words in the final letter that he wrote. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In the sovereignty of God, it seems that Paul's ambitions would never be realized through him in his own life. But that was okay. That's okay because Paul's ambition was spurred on by the prophecy of Isaiah, a prophecy which, from our vantage point in history, may seem unsubstantial. But I want you to just try, just try to imagine in Paul's day how massive it, must, it would have been. Here's the Old Testament text that Paul cites here, the end of our passage this morning, it's taken from Isaiah 52, 15, and it's a passage that for, for so many centuries was a mystery. Here's what it says. Here's the, here's the great prophecy of the Old Testament. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Who was this one that Isaiah spoke of and prophesied that the nations would come to hear about, believe in, trust in. Well, Paul has actually just abbreviated Isaiah 52, 15. He's just given you the second part. You go back and read Isaiah 52, 15. Here's what you're going to find. This one who would sprinkle many nations who would cause kings to shut their mouths. You move on to chapter 53, and you know exactly now, don't you? We're 2,000 years into this. You know who this is. This is Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's true king, the one who was now to be proclaimed and celebrated all over the known world. Now, this may seem unsubstantial to you, because we're 2,000 years into Christian history. But do you see how ambitious this was for Paul? He says, I'm going to take the news of a crucified, risen Jewish Savior to the nations and see how it goes. See if they believe. And Paul is at a place in his, mouth, in his life now where he can look back and say, look what God has done. And today, 2,000 years later, all over the world, in many nations and tongues, the crucified, risen Jewish Messiah is proclaimed as Lord. Truly astonishing for Paul, that the proclamation of Jesus as the world's true Lord had taken root all throughout the Roman Empire right under Caesar's nose. For Paul, this could mean only one thing. The fact that the nations had heard, had seen, and had believed was an indication, a massive indication 
that the promised global revolution known as the kingdom of God was well underway. And that means for you and me, Christian, that whatever God has called you to do in your ordinary daily life, it's not in vain. None of it is in vain. If the kingdom of God has come, then it means that God's everlasting work of new creation has also begun. And every work done for God by the power of his Holy Spirit through his people will accomplish his purpose and will remain for all eternity. So get some ambition and go to work for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. It is an amazing privilege, O oh God, to be counted as one of your people. How did we get here? Only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by the one who gave his life to make his enemies his friends. So we adore you, we worship you for the very fact that we would be called friends of God, children of God, and workers for God. Now, help us, help us, O oh Lord, with that last reality identity that is ours. We can get this so messed up so easily, disconnecting our work from the work of God in Christ will never bring us the satisfaction you want us to enjoy. We must remember who we are. We must remember what Christ has done. We must remember the glories of the kingdom of God that God will give to us, his people. But keeping all of that in mind, reminding ourselves constantly of that good news we are able to move forward all the more into the realities of what it means now to be your people. Living in, a new, living in the realities of the, of the kingdom of God and the new creation. We now, by the power of your spirit, find that every single one of our activities is sanctified by God himself. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we can do all boasting in Christ. The world that he has made, that he's called us to redeem for Christ. Making much of Jesus. Making much of a Jesus whose way of salvation is a way of a cross. Laying down our lives so that we might take it up again in his resurrection. This is the power you've given to us. And it's a power this world simply does not know. We do not need to win every political fight that we think is the right side. We do not have to advance your cause with carnal weapons. But instead, we make much of Jesus. And as Jesus is proclaimed and as Jesus is worshipped, as Jesus is exalted, the nations, as they have been for 2,000 years, will be brought into the family of God. So teach us, O oh Lord, how to be your people. Shape us and form us 
in the realities of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.